0: What's up? It's Alex from Mellow Humanities. So glad you're here today. My colleague Morgan Agnew and I are going to have a conversation around teachers unions. He is our teachers union president. And we're going to just talk about the ways in which teachers unions are seen in the community, the stories around what they are for and why they're so important, not just for teachers and educators, but also for the community at large. So stick around. We'll be right back to talk about unions with Morgan Agnew. right, welcome back to Hello Humanities. I am here with a colleague of mine, the SRFT, San Rafael Federation of Teachers, President Morgan Agnew. Morgan, thanks so much for being on the show with me. My pleasure. So I thought it'd be awesome if we talked about generally the role of maybe teachers unions, not just sort of here in our community, but sort of at large, and just some of the ways in which unions um, and specifically teachers teachers' unions, sort of um, how they sort of exist within the larger maybe narrative of 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 our country, and especially, I think right now. So can you kind of just explain, I guess, what do you feel um the role of a teachers' union is and and how do you feel like your role as a leader in that union sort of um, how does that manifest?
1: Yeah. So I think the primary role of a teacher's union, and I could say educators, because we have um, counselors, librarians, um, uh, school psychologists, speech therapists, they're in our ranks as well. So it isn't just teachers. Um, But I think the primary role of any union is to advocate for the salary and working conditions of their members. Um, And I think in the case of public education in particular, we're accountable to a board which is elected by the public. So ultimately, we work for the public. And I think it's important that we have our voice at the table because what the district and the board and the public will advocate for in education is often at odds with what we know to actually be in the best interest of students. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Class sizes. We know from decades and decades of study that class size is not actually a very good predictor of the quality of education. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Mm -hmm. if classes get too small, that can be detrimental to students' education. There's an ideal class size that's you know somewhere in the 20s to low 30s. You get bigger than 40, you've got a problem. You get smaller than 20, you've got a problem. But there's kind of a butter zone. And within that, it doesn't matter too much. Mm. But I would guess that most parents, most elected school board members, most lay people and members of the public, when given the choice, if you have 60 students between hiring three teachers to teach them versus hiring just two would think that hiring three teachers is better to have smaller class sizes. But in fact, if you hire just two teachers, you can pay each one of them 50% more, Mm. which means you get a much higher quality educator, you get somebody with more experience, more training, um, more enthusiasm, willing to spend more of their time on it, and the kids will actually get a better quality of education. Uh, I say as a parent, I would rather my kid be in a larger class with a more skilled and trained teacher than a smaller class with somebody who's just coming in off the street. So I think that's one example of where what we're advocating for, paying benefits uh, and better working conditions for our members really is in the interest of the students, excuse me, but is at odds with what the public might want. And therefore we need to have our voice at the table to push back and say, no, we're not gonna accept a lower salary so that you can have smaller class sizes. That isn't in our interest and it isn't in the students' interest either. Um, Another example of that would be districts often have to choose between paying uh, more for their staff, paying their staff more higher salaries or investing in programs. Um, And you see a lot of districts that have dozens of different little niche programs, schools within a school, um uh distance learning academies after school programs they have you know all the little bells and whistles well none of that means much if you can't hold on to your staff um, or you can't recruit staff if you post an opening and it sits there for three months with no applicants you know i don't care if you've got an after school program for my kid if they don't have a teacher or if they don't have a a qualified teacher or or a counselor um so i think but As a board member, it's not particularly easy to run on a record of I said no to every program that crossed my desk and said spent the money on salaries. That's not a good record to run for re-election on. It's much better as a board member to say, look at all these cool programs I put into place and look at how successful they are and not mention the cost of those programs. So that's another example of where I think teachers unions, uh, by representing our employees' best interests, salaries, benefits, working conditions, um, we're also actually representing our students' best interests by helping to make sure that the qualified professional in front of them is the top priority because we're the voice at the table ad- advocating for them. So that's kind of the first big role of any of, of youth is to advocate for the condition of, of its members. Um, and for the second kind of role, I'll give an example. Um, when Volkswagen opened their first plant in the US They did something that is unheard of for U.S. automakers, which is they encourage their workers to unionize. And the reason they encourage their workers to unionize is they were accustomed to a system in Germany with uh, what do they call them? Workers councils Mm -hmm. or something to that effect, where if management has some new change they want to put in place or some program they want to roll out or uh, uh, some they want to add some more efficiency, they want a group representing their employees that they can sit down with and have a negotiation with. They want their employees to be organized. There's a structure, and they have a partner on the other side of that table, as opposed to just disparate employee uh, employee groups or just hearing from the most vocal people or doing surveys, etc. Um, and they want that structure. And I think teachers unions provide that structure to our district. We provide that structure to our county. Um, when they have an idea that they want to bounce off of us, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, will this work? Then we are the we are represent we we are elected by our members. We represent them. We are accountable to them through our elections. Um, we communicate with them. So we provide kind of a structure and a framework to have uh, to solve problems together with the district. Now that assumes the district is interested in taking advantage of that, and our right. district is, which is fantastic. A lot of districts aren't. A lot of districts aren't interested in treating their teachers' unions as partners, um, representing their, their, their staff and, or they treat their teachers unions that way, but not their classified.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and I think that's, it's leaving a, a tremendous untapped resource. Um, so that's, I think the second role of the unions is to be that resource to, to provide a collective voice for teachers and educators in conversations
2: with the district.
0: So much to chew on there. Thank you for all of that. I have a, a couple questions sort of to those, maybe kind of separate, we can take them that way. But you mentioned the idea originally of this sense that the board and maybe the community at large has sort of different understandings or or conceptions of what it is that teachers or educators do or have in their rooms or, and you use the, um, the size of classes as an example. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think there is somewhat of a disconnect between between the district and, uh, or the, the, you know, the board, or why do you feel like there is sort of that lack of, um, I guess, I don't know, understanding? Or do you think it's like purposeful? Or do you think it's it's just kind of ignorance? Or what are your sort of thoughts?
1: I think it's true of every profession. I think that lay people do not understand what makes almost any professional good at their job. Mm. Um, I was reading a fascinating study about... um, why people pursue alternative medicine and why somebody will go to a homeopathist over a doctor. Mm. One of the points they made is that the average appointment that somebody has with their homeopathist is over an hour long. And the average check-in somebody has with their doctor is about 10 to 15 minutes. And so if your criteria is the amount of contact time you get with the professional, the homeopathist actually feels like a better doctor. Right. And I think that a lot of times the metrics we use to judge professionals are not the right metrics. Mm. Um, I think the metrics people use to judge the contractors they hire, do they respond to emails? Do they send me pictures every day from the job? Well, my question is, is the building going to (laughs) fall down? But that's not what you see when you interact with them. So I think that the teachers are just no different if you're, mm-hmm. un, unless you are actually in the profession or familiar with it, mm-hmm. um, work with teachers a lot, you don't necessarily know what makes a good teacher or for that matter, a good school, which is not to say there aren't good schools and bad schools and good teachers and bad teachers. Of course there are, of course there's a, there's a spectrum of quality, but just like how there's a spectrum of quality of, of dentists or architects, but. A lay person, in the public can't necessarily discern the difference unless they have that expertise.
0: Absolutely. Um, you mentioned also the sense that like a uh, a board member doesn't want to say no to something because of the sort of political calculations. Sometimes, do you feel like that gets in the way a lot? Like, and do you think that there's a way that that can ever go away, or just does the political nature of um, I guess, elected positions, but also the, the union, right? Like the, the role of, of that the union plays in political conversations and, and movements, too. Do you, do you get some sort of sense that that's, that, is it possible to get away from that sort of political calculation that's happening every time?
1: I don't think so. I think it's true across, you know, I think it's true in school boards, I think it's true in city councils, I think it's true in the Marin Municipal Water District, I think it's true in, in any elected body. Mm -hmm. That, you know, do you invest in core programs or do you invest in ancillary programs that are new and sexy and have the potential to be transformative? Right. And I think that is a calculation that every elected official in the country faces and school board members are no different. And if there isn't, there will always be a voice at the table for the new sexy programs because there's always somebody selling something and there's always somebody Who is advocating for change because it's something new and different it puts them at the forefront and there needs to be a voice at the table pushing back against that and advocating for the core program which is not to say that we shouldn't ever adopt the new sexy program you know everything we're doing now was once new and a lot of it is very successful but you can't have those be the only voices at the table
0: right um I also wanna take the point you made about Volkswagen and the idea of sort of the different way that companies, communities are thinking about the role of of unions and the workers themselves. Have you in in sort of becoming, you know, and being the president of, of the teachers union, do you, have you heard of stories or other communities that have, um, maybe outside of the United States, but also in the United States that have, um, maybe different stories, or the way in which that they deal with um, with either their, I guess, you know, the capital above them, or or the community at large. Do you get a sense that like unions exist differently in other places, successfully or unsuccessfully? I guess
1: I think there are a few examples of unions that uh, um, you know, that have non-combative relationships with their uh, uh, their management. I think Costco is another example um, of where the the work, the, the workplaces that, that management has just accepted that the union is there and right. tried to find a way to work with it. And the result is that Costco is a really good place to work. Um, you know, you get good benefits, you get decent hours, you get decent pay. And the result is that when you and I walk into Costco, everybody's very polite, it's fully staffed, you know, it's, everything's organized compared to Dollar Tree, right? you know, which is, is notorious for treating their employees terribly. Yes. Um, So I I think that there's a there's a lot of examples of both public and private sector where different management has kind of embraced the union as a partner. And there are lots of examples where they've treated the union as the enemy and that their goal is to outmaneuver them. Um, And I think there are, frankly, a lot of examples of where unions have behaved that way, Mm. where unions have behaved as though their goal is to kind of crush management um, and that's never productive either. So I think it, it has to come from both sides. Um, it, either side can torpedo that relationship, but I think provided that union leadership and management are both interested in engaging in it, that can be an incredibly productive relationship for you know the organization, be it public or private sector.
0: Right. That's a, and Costco is a great example, and that idea that there has to be some sort of mutual understanding and relationship in order to find some sort of compromise, which I feel like at this point, especially in the sort of, I don't know, the conversation, the larger narrative of politics, it has to be zero sum, right? Everything has to be, I won and you lost, or uh, this idea that that there can't be a sort of middle ground. And I'm curious because that also fits into this idea of, I think, especially since the pandemic, we have the, the role of teachers unions as this sort of demonized group um, for a myriad, I think, of reasons. Do you, have you noticed, I, I know that, um, I'm not, I don't remember if you were in union leadership before the pandemic, but do you do you feel like that has changed? Do you feel like the, I guess, the, the role of teachers unions in the larger conversation uh, of schools, especially, do you feel like, have you noticed it change a lot and if so, why do you think it has or and and what's to come of that?
1: I think it has changed. I think it has been true for a long time that the teachers' unions have been a punching bag of specifically the Republican Party. Um, but I mean, Arnie Duncan, Obama's uh, um, education secretary, was no friend of of public education and public unions either. so it isn't it isn't certainly something that's unique uh, to the right wing in this country. Um, I think we've long kind of been kind of been a punching bag going back to the no child left behind movement. And, you know, the idea of merit pay, which has been batted around for a long time and is a terrible, terrible idea. Um,
0: Can you explain really quickly what merit pay is, maybe for someone who doesn't know?
1: So there's a couple of different versions of it that that come about. Um, generally, the idea is you pay teachers based on student test scores. That's kind of the what what the bottom line of that boils down to. In some cases, it's it's proposed is doing teacher by teacher, which is a really great way to encourage me to kick students out of my class. I yeah. don't think they'll do well in the test. Um, and in fact, it used to be true that we would consistently get a big influx of students right before state standardized testing who just got expelled from charter schools. No way. <laughs> and that consistently happened year after year. You get three or four algebra one wow. class. you get a couple of new students every spring right before standardized testing. Where'd you come from? Oh, I came from this charter school. Huh, huh, interesting. What happened? Yeah, I flunked out huh um so there's that version of merit pay um sometimes it's done at a school-wide level where Mm -hmm. if the entire school does well then the entire school gets a bonus which again is a great encouragement to expel students who aren't doing very well academically yeah um you know the like any profession teachers do best when we collaborate and share ideas and any sort of a merit pay structure that pits us against each other poisons that Mm. That I have no incentive to collaborate with you if you and I are competing to get the best students in our class and competing to see who can raise test scores more. And I have no incentive to go to conferences and share my ideas with teachers from other schools if I'm competing with them yes. for pay bonuses. So pay is just a disastrous idea, but it gets banged around. It's been banged around for a long time by both political parties. So I think that's there's been an undercurrent of bashing teachers that has long been there. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, starting in 2016, when Betsy DeVos became secretary of education and then moving on to the pandemic, it's just supercharged. Um, It's interesting that a lot of it gets directed at the American Federation of Teachers, AFT, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that the um, National Education Association is actually larger. Um, AFT isn't even the largest union, but our president, is an outspoken queer Jewish woman. And interesting how we seem to get all the flack. Mm. Um, Randy Weingarten. Right. Um, so I, I think that's always been around. We're, we're a convenient punching,
2: bag, mm.
1: you know? Um, I think that the pandemic really supercharged it because there were people who were able to point at teachers' unions and say, they're the reason schools are closed. Right. And my analogy, and, and to be clear, I think, were there some unions out there who were just saying close schools no matter what? Probably. I'm sure you could cherry pick a few examples if that was your goal. But I think by and large, what the union was doing was demanding basic safety protocols. Um, if your mechanic says, I cannot let you drive your car out of here today because it has no brake pins, I've ordered them, but they're going to be here in a couple of weeks. The person at fault is the brake pad supplier, not the mechanic. You know, they're not at fault for not letting you drive the car out. The person at fault is the person who's failed to provide the safety equipment. Mm -hmm. In uh, the summer of 2020, right before the the, uh, the third surge, I guess it was, um, when everyone was saying, all right, we're going to reopen schools. We're going to do this. And the union sort of stood together and said, do you have HEPA filters for the rooms? And they said, nope, but we're going to do it anyway. Do you have hand sanitizer? No, that's in short supply. But we're gonna we're gonna make this work. No, you're not. If you don't have the air filtration and the hand sanitizer and the cleaning supplies, that was back when we couldn't get masks, yeah. Let alone vaccines. You know, we're not the bad guy for saying this isn't safe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the quintessential example of that: we held a rally outside of the Marin County Office of Education uh, in August of 2020. Uh, raising concerns about the uh, uh, um, the guidelines for reopening schools, which are written with no consultation with with teachers or our union represent, representation, um, they were in the consultation with the Marin County Office of Education, but not with the actual people in the classroom. And they included things like, you know, well, high school students will they'll, they'll wear masks and they'll, and they'll social distance. They'll follow the rules. We can't even stop them from vaping in the bathroom. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so we had this rally outside of Marin County Office of Education, and uh, in, in an attempted show of, of good faith and and, and magnanimity, uh, the county superintendent of schools came out and said, I, "I appreciate you guys being here. Is there anything we can do?" For you? And we said, "Well, actually, yes. We'd very much like access to the restroom inside because we're going to be out here for like an hour or so." And she said, "Oh, I I can't do that. It wouldn't be safe for our staff." So you're saying that we can't share a restroom with your staff because it wouldn't be safe. At the same time, you're demanding that all of us go back in person to a building together, sharing all those facilities with our students. How are we the bad guys here? You know, you have acknowledged that it's not safe or at the time it was perceived to not be safe for us all to go in and out of the same restroom. But when we ask for that same protection for us and our students, we're demonized for.
0: I think that idea that you bring up about this, the way in which things change on the ground, right? The way that things just, when you learn new information, when when I think that there is very little acceptance of the fact that information changes and that you learn new things. And then that changes the way that you think about something like, I, you know, as you're saying, there's ways in which when you learn more stuff, you can pivot, right? And the more you get into your sort of rigid this is what's up this is how it's going to be the the less flexibility that you have when things are changing or when you can find some sort of point of of compromise so i think i think that makes total sense and um and that sort of makes me think about this question of um of other ways that teachers i think are demonized or at least ways that unions are unions are seen not just as as you're noting in the in the beginning of this conversation, uh, the role of creating, you know, a fair opportunity, fair pay, etc, and protection, obviously, but I know that the the concept of tenure is one that um, that not only comes up within conversations with friends with with fellow teachers with community members, but students like students have conversations about like which teachers have tenure. And like, I, I find that very interesting. That was definitely, definitely something I was never talking about when I was in high school, but what are your thoughts on tenure? Like just to sort of, I don't know, create some clarification around the idea of what the concept is, what it actually is, not like what people think it is, but what it actually is um, and and why it is important and maybe some of the complexities around that.
1: Yeah. So I think you got to go back to the fact that ultimately who we work for is the public. You know, we are hired and fired by the principal, who is hired and fired by the superintendent, who is hired and fired by a school board who is elected. So ultimately, the school board, if if the school board says that teacher's got to get fired. If the principal says no, the principal can be replaced by the superintendent. Superintendent says no, the superintendent can be replaced by the board. So ultimately, if push comes to shove, if a school board member wants us out or, or the school board majority wants us out, either we're out or we have to have some protection, such as tenure. We have to have due process rights. Um, and a lot of us, our job is to teach things that are not popular. Creationism. Um, you know, we teach a lot of books. That are you know frowned upon in many states. You know we, we, we teach mouse. We teach uh, um, you know a lot of we teach about the Holocaust. We teach about the Civil Rights Movement. I teach math, so it's not quite so <laughs> sensitive for me. But I teach statistics, so we use mm. lots of examples.
2: Mm.
1: Um, and it's always been understood, you know, and your in colleges as well and, and universities, and that's for a reason. Mm. that so that we can be honest with our students and present an unbiased view of history or politics or economics or reality, um, without worry about that somebody will get pissed off and then come after our job. Hmm. Um, So I think that's the main purpose of of tenure. Um, And what tenure really is, is it's due process, right? It means, look, if you've been here for a while um, and you've established yourself and, and, and you've made it through a probationary period. We really are looking at, you know, your quality as an educator and you got to really keep your nose clean and, and you made it through that and you've been here for a while. If we're going to fire you, you've got to have actually done something wrong.
2: Mm. Um,
1: it cannot just be because we're upset about, you know, because we're getting pressure from, from some students or their families or whatever. Now, does that system need some tweaks? Probably it does. If you look at the number of teachers who are, uh, number of tenured teachers who are actually fired every year in the state of California, it's fantastically small. I don't have a number off the top of my head, but it's very, very few. I can think of a few tenured teachers who've been let go in my time at, actually one. So it's very, very difficult to get rid of somebody, of a tenured teacher. And that's probably, it is doable, but the amount of work it takes the administration to do exceeds the capacity of most administrations. Mm. They just don't have the time to complete all of the paperwork to get rid of a, a bad teacher. So what they end up doing is just kind of dealing with it because that's mm. that's within their capacity. I mean, not, not to say they're lazy, but they just it's so much work to do the paperwork to get a bad teacher out of the classroom that it's just not reasonable for most principals to do it. Right. So that's an issue. Um, I certainly don't want my kid to be taught by an awful teacher who's only there because nobody could get rid of them. Um, it only takes two years to get tenure. What this leads to is some teachers who are probably pretty good and are going to be decent teachers in the long run losing their jobs after year two because the principal not willing to take the risk that they mm. won't work out because they know if they keep that person on, if they don't work out and you don't figure that out until you're three or four or five, you're stuck. Right. So some principals would rather risk letting go of a good teacher than risk holding on to a one, mm. And that's a problem too.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So do there need to be some tweaks around the edges? Probably there do. That said, we are in year 15, 20, 30 of a teacher recruitment crisis in the yep. state of California. Enrollment in teacher credential programs has plummeted. In my time at Terra Linda, we've gone from having a math opening with over 100 applicants to now if we had had to repost the same opening three times because we had zero qualified applicants. Um, So we've got a real issue. And most teachers, if you survey them, will tell you that they value their tenure to the tune of five figures a year. Um, And in fact, having tenure means I don't need to put as much money into savings because I'm not going to lose my job next year. Right. You know, if I I were an at-will employee anywhere else, I'd probably want to have six months to a year's worth of living expenses saved up because I could lose my job any day. I'm not, so I don't need to. And that means I can put that money into non-liquid accounts like my house or my retirement, my kid's 529 plan. So that's a real financial economic value to me to have tenure. So in the midst of a teacher recruitment crisis, step one is not to take away something that teachers value, right? That's going to make that crisis worse. Mm. You know, if we get teacher pay and benefits and respect to the point where we're, you know, we're we're qualified teachers saying, man, I, I just can't find a job anymore. You know, when we get to that point, then yeah, let's have a conversation about maybe it's time to tweak the 10 year system. Right. Um, But until then, the recruitment crisis is the number one issue. You know, you you think about these these, quote unquote, bad teachers. How did they get that way? Well, either they've always been a terrible teacher, but somebody had to hire them and keep them. And that meant somebody was desperate.
0: Yes. Yes. yes, Well said.
1: Or they used to be a good teacher. And they've stagnated, or they've gone downhill, or they've given up. In that case, the question is, what are we doing to manage and motivate teachers? They can actually encourage them to be their best, right? Either case, there's a root cause of the problem that needs to be addressed before you talk about how do we get rid of that teacher.
0: So it seems to me, and and along those lines and other things you've said, that you see this Way in which a lot of times the thing that people are complaining about or demonizing is the sort of surface level um, presentation of what is a deeper problem. And to your point, and I was actually talking about this with, um, with, a, with a, a colleague earlier, is that this idea of if a teacher, and to this point, if a teacher is you know, burnt out or you know, not the same as they were or have been, there's this. It, to me, it's never about what is that teacher physically um, doing, but why is it that that that's where they're at at this point, and that that it it's not. No one no one comes in to be a teacher to to not like it. To to you know, it's not like we're getting paid amazingly well in order. And this is the job to do that. Like something else is going on. And the systemic issues underneath are the things, to your point, that we should address. And the fact that we don't have wonderful people who are getting into credential programs and we're having to, you know, to, as you said, like hire people who themselves may not have been a good choice, a good candidate, but that we were desperate to do so. So. Um, that's such a great point. I I want to ask a question that's you've you've mentioned it a couple of times, but and and I've noted I note myself like as a parent, do you think that and this is sort of outside of maybe the union question, but just as a teacher, do you feel like being a parent has helped make you a better teacher?
1: I think being a teacher has helped make me a better parent.
0: Ooh, flipped it on me. Tell me more. What do you mean?
1: Um, I've got a lot of experience, you know, holding my ground, um, and you know, recognizing that. What feels like a reasonable accommodation to make in the moment mm. is in fact teaching this young person in front of me that if they are sufficiently demanding that the rules are flexible mm. And you know, there be dragons when you go down that road as a parent. as soon as your kid learns that if they just fuss and cry and demand enough, they will get what they want, there will be no end of the fussing and crying and demanding. Mm. Um, and I think that that, I think if you're a parent first and then become a teacher, being a parent helps you be a better teacher. If you're a teacher first and become a parent, being a teacher helps you become a better parent because you get experience with, with young people. Yeah. Um, and I hate to say it, but, but my first grader and the ninth graders in front of me, in a lot of ways aren't that different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, they're both not fully developed minds <laughs> yes. and oftentimes react to setbacks in ways that look very different, but aren't that dissimilar below the hood. For sure. Um,
0: so I, just to sort of bring this to a, to a close and to kind of land the plane on this, do you feel like there are any, there are any sort of messages that you would give to uh, the audience, to the community that sort of speak to the idea of why teachers unions are in fact so important, not just for the teachers, but for the community at large and the people who live in the community of that, um, that LEA or that school?
1: think you wouldn't want a healthcare system where all of the decisions about the structure of it were made by the administrators of the healthcare system and none of them were made by the doctors and nurses. I would not want to go to that hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, You would not want excuse me, you would not want um, uh, a police department where the actual police who had to walk the beat had zero say Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in how things were conducted. Um, That's maybe not the best example because there's some complexities there as well. (laughs) Of course. Um, And I don't think you'd want an education system, excuse me, by enough cold as, as all we teachers always are. Indeed. You would not want an education system where the people who are on the front line in contact with the students on a daily basis don't have an organized voice in the way the organization is run. Mm.
2: Um,
1: And that's what unions provide. They provide a structure for that voice so that we can advocate for teachers, counselors, librarians, and make their job attractive and meaningful um, and therefore recruit and retain the best people.
0: Right, Um, and I also think, of course, that the experience that the students in those classrooms in those schools are going to have is going to be that much better as you noted with your um with i think it was the the costco analogy like when you go into these spaces people are happy to be there they are protected they feel supported and i think that's the same as anyone we want to feel that we have a say we have a voice and we have support and that is going to make us do our work in a much more invested and um, obviously uh engaging way for our students so and,
1: and the data backs this up you know mm. this isn't just theory when you control for a student's socioeconomic background when you compare like students to like students mm-hmm. public education offer public schools offer a better education than private schools you know when you when you control for the for the socioeconomic status of the students going into it we offer a better quality of education mm. now why is that Private schools have way more resources, right? They um, have way more autonomy, but somehow public schools are able to offer a better quality of education. And our teachers are tenured, they're unionized, they have their uh, um, credentials, all, all of them have their credentials, they're held accountable to public elected boards, and those structures matter. Those structures make a difference when it comes to the quality of education that kids actually get um to tie it back to a point you mentioned earlier i mean some of this gets really down in the weeds you know i'm thinking of uh, going back to the kind of a, the the bad teacher example mm-hmm. and the, the person who's been, in the, who's been in the classroom for 20 years they're in their mid-40s and they're burned out and and they're they're done and this happens in any career right people burn out in any career Absolutely. you know um, a lot of people burn out and become teachers um but then they look at their retirement And they say, well, wait a minute, I haven't been paying into social security this whole time. So I have no social security. And if I leave the profession now, I've only got 18 years of service credit into my pension.
2: Mm. So my
1: pension's not worth much. And I don't have a 401k. Oh, crap. If I leave the classroom, I can never retire. Mm. And so they stay. Because it's financially the only decision that makes sense. Right. And. Well, there's a lot of laws that are creating that structure. There's something called the WEP-GPO, the Windfall Elimination Provision Government Pension Offset, which prevents you from pulling a teacher's pension and a Social Security check at the same time, even if you've paid into both of them. Hmm. And who do you think is advocating to change that law? Teachers unions. Because we're the ones who are affected by it and we're the ones who have a stake in. It. Thank you, Ronald Reagan, for putting that law in place in the first place, by the way. It just seems so galling to him that somebody could, my God, they could collect two pensions. I paid into both of them.
0: Some Reagan shade today. I like it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's there's that kind of inside baseball that 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 you know that, that the politics of it that people don't necessarily see. But, you know, we're we're working to take off the golden handcuffs. Mm that keep people in the profession, don't really want to be there, but financially don't really have a choice. And if their pension were portable, if their pension could be moved over to other careers, or they could at the very least also draw Social Security, Mm. then financially, they actually could exit the classroom and go do something more meaningful to them. So I think that's just one example of a way in which kind of behind the scenes unions are advocating to make the quality of education better by creating that flexibility for people who don't necessarily really want to be there. anymore.
0: And again, back to the point of, of systemic problems, right? People are doing what they feel like they have to do in order to survive in a system that doesn't offer lots of, of avenues to be able to to keep your head above water and to, and to sort of live your best life if you're always having to kind of go around or find loopholes in that system. And so, um Thank you so much, Morgan, for having this conversation. It's super enlightening. Um, and as a member of the Teachers Union, I appreciate all of your work uh, in in fighting for and and helping to get support for for my job and my livelihood.
1: My pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much to Morgan Agnew for joining me today on the pod. So happy to talk about lots of different things around the humanities, especially labor and the protection of such super interesting conversation. I'm really glad that we were able to get together and talk. Stick around, stay tuned in the coming weeks. Lots of great guests, lots of great conversations. Really excited to be here on Hella Humanities having these convos. So have a lovely rest of your week and uh, and we'll see you
2: hopefully soon. Peace.